Good morning. You you made it to church on the day that we lost an hour. You get a pat on the back and extra bounty points for that. Well, hey, this morning we're in week two of our Lenten journey that we got to kick off Ash Wednesday a few, a week and a half or so ago. And so then we're also in week two of our sermon series that we're going through Lent. The sermon series is called No Wonder They Crucified Him. We're taking a look at some of the teachings of Jesus and some of the teachings of Jesus that happened to cause the religious and the political leaders of that time to say, we've got to get rid of this guy. Um, No wonder they crucified him. And so this morning we're in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, and feel free to read along with me. The words will be on the screen. And as we enter into this text, I want to provide a little bit of background for us. What happens right before we get into this text is that Jesus and those who are with him, quite a big crowd of people, they're heading on to Jerusalem. It's near the end of his ministry. He's garnered quite the following at this point, and this group's on its way to Jerusalem. And at one point, he pulls the disciples, his 12 disciples, he pulls them aside with him. He says, I've got something important to tell you. And he he goes on to tell them what's about to happen when he gets to Jerusalem, that he's going to be taken, and he's going to be crucified, and he's going to raise again on the third day, and that the kingdom of God is coming nearer and nearer. He lets them in on the secret about what's coming. And this is where we enter into the text this morning. In verse 20, it says this. It says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, Grant one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, he said. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard about this, when the other disciples heard about the fact that these two were asking this of Jesus— When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus calls them together and says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high priests exercise authority over them. And he says this in verse 26. He says, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What does it mean to be great? What does it mean... To be great. Things you should know about me, I spend far too much time obsessing over the question of who's the goat? Who's the greatest of all time? Who is the goat? I'm, I'm interested in who's the goat in everything. I want to know who's the goat basketball player. I want to know who's the goat newspaper columnist. I want to know who's the goat 
musical artist. No matter what the category is, my fixation starts more and more becoming, who's the goat? I just want to know who's the greatest. I think a quick survey of human history and anthropology shows us that it's not just me who's fascinated with this. I think that we, as a people, we get pretty fascinated with the idea of who's, who's the goat? Who's the greatest? And we find ourselves in places where we, we want to listen or, or be around the people who are the greatest, the people that have the biggest followings, the people who are the best at something. We're attracted to them, and all of a sudden we start wanting to become more and more like them. We start wanting to follow them, to pay attention to what they're doing, to be around them. And if we're honest with ourselves, or at least if I'm honest with myself, maybe, just maybe, we kind of want to be like them, too. We kind of want to be great, too. It's possible that maybe you've imagined yourself sort of experiencing what it's like to be great. You've imagined yourself in a scenario where you're crossing the finish line, first place in the race, the confetti's raining down, they're giving you the trophy, everybody's cheering, saying, this person, they're the greatest. Or you're imagining yourself in that situation where, where you're getting called up on stage and this very important person, there's a whole crowd of your colleagues sitting in the audience and this very important person is handing you the award that says, you're the greatest in your profession. You did it, you're the best. Or you've imagined yourself in that situation where your, your kids or your grandkids or your niece and your nephew, they throw you the most grand celebration that you could possibly imagine because they just want to shout from the rooftops, this parent, this grandparent, this aunt, this uncle, they're the greatest ever. Maybe you've imagined yourself in that type of situation because I think I'm not alone in having this inkling that we, I want to be great. And then if I'm honest with myself, not only do I want to be great, but I want everybody else to know that I'm great. I want everybody else to see me being great. Well, so did James and John, the sons of Zebedee. You see, they've been following Jesus for years at this point. They're, they're part of his inner circle. They're, they're deeply enmeshed in his ministry. And as he starts to talk about the fact of, hey, this is about to happen. I'm about to go to the cross, and I'm going to be raised from the dead, and the kingdom of God is coming nearer and nearer. James and John, they start to, their eyes start to light up. They start to think, ah, this is it. God's kingdom, it's coming nearer, and we want to be considered great in it. And so what do they do? They come to Jesus. Well, actually, their mom comes to Jesus on behalf of them, a mom jockeying or politicking for her son's positions in something. Maybe or maybe you're not familiar with that. Um, but her, their mom and them come to Jesus and ask him, hey, will you consider them the goat, the greatest disciples? So much so that you'll have one of them sit on your right and one of them sit on your left in your coming kingdom. 
You see, they're, they're in essence saying, we want to be considered the greatest. We want to receive the glory and the status that comes from following you so well. We want everybody else to know how great we are by the position that you give, with, give us so that everybody can look up at us and say, ah, those guys, they're the greatest. And then Jesus responds. And he responds, as he seems to always do, he responds in the exact opposite way of the people that are asking him the question, think he's going to respond. And But before he responds, he does something that I think merits the importance of what he's about to say. He, he calls all 12 disciples together. So James and John, they come to him and they say, hey, we want to we be, be considered the greatest. And then the other 10, they say, what, what in the world? They start getting mad at the fact that James and John had the gumption to go and ask Jesus for that. And so Jesus, as all good managers do, he's like, all right, we're going to have a town hall meeting. Everybody come here. We need to talk about this. And he, so he gets them all in the room as if to say, what I'm about to say is going to be pretty important, so I need you to listen up. And he says this. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and that they're high officials, that they exercise authority over them. In, in essence, he's saying, I know what greatness looks like in the eyes of the world. I'm, I'm aware. I'm keenly aware of what greatness looks like in the eyes of the world. He's saying, I know it's reserved for people that have high status. I know it's reserved for people who lord things over others, who make others look up to them and they look down on other people. I know that, it, that greatness in the eyes of the world is for people who build their own kingdoms. And then he says this in verse 26. As he stares his disciples, I can imagine, right in the eyes, he says, but not so with you. But not so with you. And he continues, instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. You want to be great? He asks. Become a servant. Stoop low. That's how greatness is defined in God's kingdom, he says. No wonder they crucified him. There's no wonder they crucified him. Can you imagine? Greatness by becoming a servant? Seriously, Jesus? Great servanthood and greatness, they, no part of them in that world were at all synonymous. There was nothing similar about someone who was serving in any capacity and someone who was great. No, in the Greco-Roman world, and Jesus acknowledges that he knows this, in the Greco-Roman world, greatness, it's, it's like you flaunt the greatness. Greatness is when you're up here, when you have status, when, when, and then when you get everybody to look up at you and say, wow, that person, they're great. And yet, Jesus says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. The complete opposite of what anybody at that time would have expected when they thought about what does it mean to be great. You see, nobody at that time would have 
opted in, would have themselves opted in to being a servant. You only served at that time if you were forced into it. If your life circumstances or situation made it so that you had no, no other option but to serve. That was when you existed in the posture of a servant in no other way. So much so that, that the Greek philosopher Plato, who's, um, I think, much of his teaching and his writing and his philosophizing would have permeated and established some of the culture at the time. He says this. He says, how can someone be happy when he or she has to serve someone? How can someone be happy when he or she has to serve someone? That was Plato's question, and that would have been the philosophy of the time, the worldview of the time. And I'd be remiss if I didn't just ask if it's maybe similar today still. A lifestyle of service? Really, Jesus? I mean, I can understand if you want me to do a nice thing for someone every once in a while, or if you want me to kind of stoop low every once in a while and figure out how I can serve someone, but a lifestyle of service? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, when I think about it, it's like, could I really be happy? Could I really be content? Could I actually be fulfilled if I spent my life as a servant? No wonder they crucified him. I was reflecting recently on the fact that Jesus uses quite a bit of agricultural metaphors in his teachings and preachings amongst his ministry. And I think at some point, it makes sense, a number of people at the time, they would have known quite a bit about agriculture, and so Jesus was great at teaching in the context and in the culture of the people that he was teaching, and so he would have used agricultural metaphors to make sure that someone would understand what he was saying. But I also can't get past this idea that, that maybe there's something more profound, maybe there was a bigger reason that he used agricultural metaphors in this way. You see, because what's true of a seed is that God creates a seed, and God creates a seed with the intention and in mind of what it's going to become, this, this amazingly beautiful, great plant. But what happens first and foremost in order for the seed to become what God has actually created it to be? What has to happen in order for the seed to become the beautiful, incredible, great thing that God has made it to be? Is it has to be buried underground. It has to stoop low, in a sense. It has to become nothing in some way. Only then, only then does it have any chance of flourishing, of growing into what God has actually created it to be. And I just wonder if Jesus is attempting to communicate the same thing with us in this passage. That if we want to become all that God has created us to be, if we want to thrive and exist and grow into the incredible person that God has with no, no doubt created us to be, then Jesus says pretty clearly the first act, the first movement, the first step in that is to 
stoop low, to be buried underground, so to speak, to become a servant. Only then, Jesus says, only then do we have the chance to actually grow and thrive and become the beautiful, incredible creation that we were created to be. And only then do we have the opportunity to live into the greatness that is his kingdom, the restoration of this world both now and forevermore. The first step is to stoop low and become a servant. Jesus concludes his teaching in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 20, verse 28. He concludes this set of teaching by sharing that, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but instead the Son of Man, referring to himself, came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, I've come to show you what the model of serving looks like so that you can replicate it. That's a sort of exclamation point to this passage. And so how did Jesus serve us? Jesus showed us his heart and his commitment to serving us by coming down from the, the purity and the, the untouchableness of heaven into the muckiness, the brokenness, the sinful nature of this world. He did so willingly, and he lived, and he breathed, and he ate, and he drank among us, all the while showing us how much he cared to serve us, lowly human beings. And as if that wasn't enough, then he made his way to the cross and endured the most painful, torturous, and humiliating death you could possibly Imagine, as if to say, I want you to make sure you know that the, that the depth and the breadth and the level of my commitment to being a servant of you and me, it knows no bounds. There is no ceiling. There is literally no end to his desire to be our servant. That's how Jesus served us. And he essentially is saying in verse 28, so then do unto others as I have done for you. Serve others because I first served you. That's his call to servanthood, his kingdom. It's not like this world. You see, Jesus flips the entirety of the kingdom upside down. He says, you want to know what greatness is? Greatness in the world is over here. I'm going to flip it upside down. Greatness in the kingdom is something entirely different. You see, kingdom greatness means serving others in a way that genuinely wants to see them thrive, even at potentially great worldly cost to you. Because isn't the story of the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus one that says, his definition of greatness is based on servanthood. And so kingdom greatness, it just means seeing how Jesus has already so graciously served us and being compelled by that love 
to go and do likewise. To go and do likewise in serving others. Someone was telling me a story the other day. There's a, a poor boy named Howard Kelly. And Howard Kelly uh, was, was, was working day in and day out, going door to door, trying to pay himself his way through school. And uh, one day, he, he, as he's going door to door, he reaches in his pockets and realizes he's only got one dime left. He hasn't eaten all day. He's really hungry. And he thinks, when I stop at this next house, when I stop at this next house, I'm going to ask for some food. I'm starving. And so he, he knocks on the door, and this young, lovely woman opens the door, and Howard Kelly immediately, as a young man, sort of gets awestruck. He loses his wits about him. He feels some sort of shame, and he thinks, I can't, can't ask for anything to eat anymore. So he kind of backs away, and he thinks, uh, at least I'll ask for a glass of water, and so he does so. And this young woman, in her servant-hearted, caring way, says, of course, and yet she recognizes that Howard looks hungry, that he could use something more. And so she brings Howard back this incredibly tall glass of milk. And Howard, just with such relief, takes the glass of milk and slowly drinks it. He can feel his strength coming back. He can feel the nutrients coming into his body. And as he finally finishes the glass of milk, he gives it back to the young woman and says, thank you, how much do I owe you? And the young woman says, you, you don't owe me anything. My mom always taught me that, that acts of service, they don't go, they're not repaid. He says, okay, well, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. And Howard heads off to the next house. And he bounds down the steps as if he's like rejuvenated for the rest of his, lo- for the rest of his day. Because Howard, you see, he was about to reach the end of his rope. He was getting to the point where he was about to throw in the towel and say, this life, it's not really doing it for me anymore. It's not worth it. And yet, at that moment, he started to feel this rejuvenation to say, I can keep going. I'm going to keep doing this. Eventually, a couple months later, I'm sorry, a couple years later, this young woman, she falls gravely ill to the point that the doctors in her local hometown, they can't do anything about it. And so they ship her to the big city, to the big hospital in the big city, and they say, maybe they'll be able to help you there. So she goes there, and the doctors in the big city, they do their normal check-in and scan, and they think, we've got to call in the specialist. There's only one person who might be able to help you. And so they dial the phone number of Dr. Howard Kelly to come in for the consultation. And Howard, immediately upon learning of where she's from, his eyes light up. He gets out of his chair. He heads down the hall. He peeks in her room as, she, as he sees her laying half unconscious and so sick in her bed. And he, he recognizes her in an instant. I remember her. And so he dedicates the rest of his days in the coming weeks and months to nothing else but making sure this young woman will be able to live to serving in that capacity however he can. And after months and years of fighting this disease, finally the battle is won and she starts to heal. She's restored back to the full physical strength. And Howard Kelly's done with this final surgical procedure and he leaves the room to stop by the business office on the way 
back to his office. He peeks in the business office and he says, hey, when you're going to send that woman the bill, would you run it by my office first? I just want to sign off and approve it. And the business office says, great, yeah, we'll send it your way. They send him the bill. It appears on his desk the next day. He opens it up, surveys everything, looks good, and he jots a little note in the bottom right corner. Folds it back up, sends it to her room. Now, the young woman, she's thrilled that she's feeling better. Her physical health is restored completely, but she's also dreading getting the bill. She knows, given her situation, what these kinds of things cost. It's going to take her the rest of her life to pay this thing off, if not more. So she just lets the bill sit next to her bedside table for days, not willing to touch it. Finally, one morning, she wakes up in a good mood, so she summons the courage to open the bill. Opens the piece of paper, starts to scan the numbers, sort of with one eye closed, thinking, oh no. Until this writing in the bottom right corner of the page catches her eye. She goes and reads this scribbled handwriting in the bottom of the page that says, paid in full with one glass of milk. Love, Dr. Howard Kelly. Would we know and would we live as such that our debt has been paid in full by the one who has committed to serve us in a way that we could not possibly fathom? And would we could be compelled like Howard and the woman, to serve others likewise this week and beyond. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the time that we get to spend together in worshiping you. God, we thank you for the teachings that sometimes cause us to squirm in our seat, and yet at the same time, we can recognize with faith in you that cause us and compel us further and further into being in your kingdom, to living into who you've created us to be. So God, we bring these things to you this morning. Would you turn our hearts from being obsessed with worldly greatness, with being obsessed with building our own kingdom? And would you turn it towards being obsessed with your kingdom and greatness in that which can only be found by being a servant? Thank you for what you've done for us and how it compels us to serve others both now and forevermore. Amen.